Okay, everyone, welcome to The Great Divide. This is episode 14. We are back after a long, long hiatus of, well, it wasn't that long, really, for most podcasts, but for us, it was long. Um, this is our first podcast since the holidays. Did you have a good holidays, fine? It was fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. Good. I, I did as well. Good one here. And um, we are back to do uh, a, an episode, actually a three-part episode, another another trilogy. And you might even call it a trinity, which fits in well with <laughs> with some the way some of us view the seer as it stands in the Big Country catalog. But this is going to be a podcast, a series of episodes devoted to the seer. And we just thought it was time to go back and do what's considered a classic album because really Spine and I – not that No Place Like Home isn't a classic album. I don't want to offend anyone who loves No Place Like Home, but you know, let's face it, the, the, the vast majority of big country fans really have some sort of affinity for those first three albums. So we thought we would go and, and pick one from those first three, since when we did The Crossing, it really wasn't we at all. It was just me. That was the first podcast that we did. And maybe one of these days, Svein and I will go back and do The Crossing again together. But for now, we thought we would go back to The Seer and give it our treatment, our our deep dive treatment where we're going to go through it track by track and talk about how we feel about each song and everything that that uh, you know us for here on this uh, on this podcast so hopefully you'll enjoy it besides say uh, the summer of 85 which is live aid uh, take it from the beginning of 85 until say may 86 what a big country actually up to well we spent a uh, three months at the beginning of 1985, mainly myself actually doing a, a score for a movie called Restless Natives, which I think it, it wasn't one of these jobs where you sort of supply one track and, and it gets used to plug the movie. I actually did the whole score and uh, that was pretty good to do. Then we had a couple of months off. Tony's wife had uh, a daughter, my wife had a daughter in June. Uh, went to Live Aid and then I was already by that time writing songs for this album. We started uh, rehearsing, I think, at the end of August and then went to the States, did a few gigs in the States, started recording uh, late November, and were recording right through till March, we finished the album up in March, yeah. and then uh, just went Im- immediately went straight back out on the road again. Just about the coming out of Steel Town, uh, it was a successful album on the level that it reached the top of the charts in the UK, that's a big thing. Uh, it didn't have any hit singles, which was a bone of contention with the record company. And also the drop from the number one spot was uh, quite steep. You know, it, it stayed there for a couple of weeks and then it went down again. So uh, even though it charted higher than the crossing, uh, how much of a bigger success it was or wasn't is uh, obviously debatable. So uh, so it's kind of one of those things for fans that we, most fans really love that album. It, it's uh, such a pinnacle of a success for us. But it wasn't regarded as a success for the record company. And in fact, they they saw it differently. They saw it as a failure. So uh, even though the tour went well, very big tour, sold out everywhere, and uh, did good on that front, uh, what they got out of the entire, shall we call, Steel Town era was a stronger focus on the next time. We really need a hit. We need we need some success. We need some chart action. And uh, doesn't going that suck, in- by the way? It, it really sucks. I'm I'm sort of gritting teeth as I'm saying this. It makes That's, me sad when, it, as you as you talk, I'm like getting sad because I just yeah. feel I just feel like Steel Town was like the band doing exactly what they wanted to do, and now we're getting into territory where they're not necessarily. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
you're saying it so so nicely. This is what most fans are thinking. They're coming out of this thing. The greatest album in the history of mankind, Failure. Uh, it charted at number one, not good enough. No singles, so what? <laughs> but, uh, that's, uh, but, but this is the mindset that uh, the band was dealing with. And, um, well, so, so be it, I guess, to some degree. Uh, this was the 80s. We, um, those who lived through the 80s know how important it was to have a hit single and a hit video. Uh, and once you had that, you automatically got the sales. And if you didn't, you were completely out. There was really no middle ground. Uh, or a very small middle ground, if you will. So uh, uh, 1985 went by, and uh, during autumn they started writing for the next album, and they started production for the actual album in December 1985. The the recording was done at the Power Plant Studios and the RAK Studios in London, and the recordings were finished in February 1986. So a full three months of recording, and then it was eventually released in July. So Steve Lillywhite was uh, really synonymous with the band so far. You know, why not Steve Lillywhite? You've had Steve Lillywhite as your producer, and this time around you've used Robin Miller. Now, Steve Lillywhite, you might have used again, might you, only that he was yeah, working with the Rolling Stones. He was actually still working on the on the last Rolling Stones album. So you yeah. would have used Steve Lillywhite? Um, we might have done it. I think it's, it's a good idea to change uh, your perspective uh, from time to time. And I, I, I enjoyed working with Robin immensely, so maybe we'll get together with him again. Well, how much of a perspective is changed in something like that? Because I get the impression that a producer uh, at this stage is not the most important thing to big country, as opposed to some bands who are sort of changing their sound yeah. a lot. Because I think it's there anyway. I would agree with that. Uh, I think we're not the sort of band who goes to a producer and says, look, we're really stuck for a sound, you'll have to help us out with this album, you know. I think uh, what we we like to do is have a... Uh, because we're always flinging ideas about anyway, and if we try and do it ourselves, it always ends up terribly cluttered, you know. As have someone there who c- can sort of stand back from it and referee and say, well, this is right or that's wrong, or let's take ten minutes and get the sound just perfect on this. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely much prefer working with a producer than uh, than us doing it ourselves. So it's it's it'll, it'll be like that for a few years to come yet, I think. Mm. Yeah, so Robin Miller enters the stage as the choice. And, uh, you mean Robin Miller? Uh, that's what you say. And I guess, uh, <laughs> I, th- I think we got that corrected. Yeah. For yeah. years, you were saying Robin Miller. Yeah, I, I, because his name is M-I-L-L-A-R in English, you just naturally would say that as Miller, not Miller. Why did you use Robin Millar instead of using Steve Lillywhite again? So, so I, I for years have called him Robin Millar and thought, oh, what an, what an exotic last name, Robin Millar. But uh, yeah. only recently did I realize it was Miller and Bruce, Bruce Watson uh, cut, completely confirmed it and corrected me on that. So it's, it is Robin Miller. Yeah, so Millar is now led to rest. Yes, not it is. Again. Unfortunately. Yeah. So uh, Mr. Miller came from producing artists like Sade, Everything But The Girl, and Fine Young Cannibals. And am I the only one who looks at those credentials and think, what the heck? You know, what about yeah. the artist indicates that this guy is the right choice for big country? Yeah, he, he definitely, you know, when you look at those those artists, you wouldn't think of him, especially coming off of Steel Town, you wouldn't think of him yeah. producing big country. But, you know, I got to say that I'm glad they chose him because um, he brought something that I think was really, really needed at the time. And maybe not maybe needed is the wrong word because they could have done another Steel Town and I wouldn't have complained. But obviously they wanted to get away from that dense wall of sound that they had constructed with Steel Town. So, you know, they, if you look at those people that he had produced in the past, there is kind of an airy quality to that production and, and a lot of nice layering of instrumentation and separation and and uh, and stuff. So. 
Now, I mean, for me personally, looking back, I think I think Steve Lillywhite not being available was a was a blessing in disguise. And you know, whether they were going to pick him if he had been available, I'm not sure if that's ever been confirmed. But you know, I'm, I'm glad they they went somewhere different and and tried something different. And I I really love Robin Miller's production. I think Robin was was very good for the band, and it's that he brought out uh, the the space and and melody and, and things that was a direction we wanted to go in. Anyway, we felt. We wanted to be a bit more airy with this album and have a bit more room on it. And uh, it was very good to work with. I enjoyed working with him immensely. I think he's a great man. So, yeah, Robin Miller, the interesting thing is that uh, I tried to get him on the show. I, I wanted him to be a part of this. Um, you know, getting a taste of actually speaking with someone like Bruce is kind of, you know, now now we're going to try to find people like this to talk to on our podcast. Now, alas, it was not to be with Robin Miller, but... It was not completely for naught. I did have some correspondence with him that I'll share with you that was really interesting. Um, one of the things to set this up, his his response to me when I asked him to be on the show, um, the first person who responded to me was someone who I think was his assistant. And she was very kind, uh, thanked me for the email, and kind of intimated that Robin was never very happy with the seer. And that had nothing to do with Big Country or the, or the guys in the band. He loved those guys and loved working with them. But Robin Miller's original mixes for this album were, are, not, are not the ones that we hear on this year. Um, what happened was a guy that I'll talk about here named Dave Bates, who was the A&R man for Phonogram when the Seer was released, um, did not like the mixes that Robin Miller had produced. And uh, he scrapped them, and they brought in a new guy named Walter, Walter Turbot, who would work with the cars and uh, some other people, uh, an American guy. And he came in and remixed the album. And now Robin Miller still gets the production credit because he did all, all the producing work. But um, this guy came in and remixed the album and added some things that, you know, Miller was not very happy with. And to be honest, I don't think Svein or myself are happy with when we look back at what could have been. But anyway, so I heard from the assistant that, you know, Robin was not that happy with the album. He, he might not want to be a part of the, of, the podcast didn't necessarily have anything to add, but I was a little persistent and I was very polite and just said, you know, we love what he did and just want to thank him for the work on the album. And, uh, you know, I gave him a link to the site and heard back again that he was interested in hearing some of the podcasts that we have done, that we had done. And we uh -oh. just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we had, we had just finished the conversation with Bruce. So obviously my thought was to send him the section where we spoke about the seer and Bruce talked a lot about, um, what happened with Walter Turbot and, and with the original mixes. So I isolated that part of the conversation, sent it to Robin Miller, and he listened and got back to me personally. And I'm going to read you what he said. He says, Tom, thank you for the link. It was good to hear Bruce's voice again. I heard great reports of the latest tour from many sources, and I was sorry not to be able to attend. I enjoyed my time working with all the members of the band. They were fun, worked hard, played really well, and were very warm to a move away from the industrial 80s to a more human, organic approach. The intention, nine months before the release of The Joshua Tree, was to move into the area of simple realism, letting the drama and emotion of the song, the lyric, and the performance, and the musicianship replace the drama of digital 80s reverb. I think it's a great... <laughs> this guy writes very beautifully. That was a great way to put it. Then he says, After all, why would any band change to working with me? That's what I do. Bruce's recollection of how it ended and his comments, for example, on Kate's great contribution and what became of it are pretty well complete and need no expansion from me. The one thing perhaps Bruce forgot is that I did indeed mix one track that survived. The single Look Away, as released, was my mix. 
It was the same week that single became the band's biggest ever hit that Walter was asked to come in and mix the album. In fact, I ran off multi-track copies, and as Bruce has told you, I did complete mixes of the whole album, since that is what I wanted to do. The single version of Look Away did not make it to the album. That was one of Walter's mixes. I am all for unanimity on albums, so it wasn't an unreasonable decision at the end of the day. Unless you have a copy of that original single, I'm pretty sure that mix didn't make any greatest hits, Spotify, or anywhere else, a collector's item. I'm pleased for the band you are devoting time and trouble to this website, and I wish you very well with it. I'm happy for you to use any part of this note on your site. I don't think I have anything to add except to say hello to Bruce, Mark, and Tony. All the best, Robin. So what a, what a very cool response, and um, if there's some chance that Robin is listening to this, I'll, actually, I will send him a link to it just in case. But uh, So thank you, Robin, for responding. And um, you know, very cool of him to, to shed some light on that. And it also made it clear that there was, as he said, another mix or one of his original mixes that survived, and that is Look Away. Now, when I saw that, I began to think, well, I must have heard this somewhere before. And I, I went to look and, and had some difficulty finding it. But then I realized that my wife had a copy of one of the box sets of Big Country singles that was released a number of years ago. And uh, it was version two, volume two, I should say. And in that was the original single release of Look Away. So if you've got if you've got volume two of the box set of the singles box set, you can find this and we're going to play some of it here anyway. So don't, don't worry about it. But, um, if you want the full quality version, I think you're going to have to get that box set. Cause I don't know if it exists anywhere else, but on there is Robin Miller's original mix of look away. And sure enough, his, his jab in that letter about, um, digital eighties reverb, you can really see what he meant because the main difference is, well, one of the main differences is that reverb. And instead of me trying to talk about it, let's just play. We're gonna we'll play um we'll play the original uh, version of Robin Miller of Look Away, Robin Miller's mix, the intro, and then we'll play the intro as it appears on the Seer. Okay, let's do that one more time and really listen to that uh, reverb on the drums. Okay, now we're going to play a good chunk of the song, starting with the Robin Miller original mix, and it's going to fade in and out with the Walter Turbot mix that was used on the album.
I was not really aware of the differences uh, either, and of the beta version until recently. And uh, man, what a ver what a difference this is, right? Uh, <laughs> it, it it sort of makes the mind boggle. What could the album have been if the rest of the album had gotten that treatment? Because the clarity, the way that each instrumentation part just leaps at you, and you can hear it. You can hear stuff tucked away in the corners, and they come out. Whereas the other one is just drenched in reverb, and definitely much more dated. I love so, his, I love his word. The word he uses, organic, because that's what this song sounds like. It has a very organic feel to it. It doesn't have that overprocessed feel. So yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And he made a point of why would you choose him if you didn't want that to begin with? Because that's what he does. And uh, when you look at the credential of the other artists, and uh, like I mentioned, how the hell would you make the leap from those artists to big country? But the leap consists in that approach, in the organic approach, in the more airy approach. And we already explained what we mean with that. So uh, they picked him. And like I said, they sort of went away from it at the end. They sort of got cold feet. And, uh, the, you know, it's a bit strange. I can't really explain how, why they did it, but well, uh, yeah. that's what they did. I can explain it in two words, and that would be this guy, Dave Bates. Damn you, Dave Bates. Yeah, but yet it's not an explanation. That's that's what happened. Oh, you're right. But you're right. Yeah. I, I guess I guess in his mind, um, I, you know, I guess. Well, before I say I guess, let me just read something that Dave Bates said because this kind of this kind of sets up the mindset that is going into the recording of this album, at least from a from a record company perspective. And I think we we have to keep that in mind a lot for this album because. You know, really, as we said, Steel Town was like this, a band doing exactly what they wanted to do. The Crossing had been huge. Nobody was going to screw with them while they were recording their second album. No, record companies don't want to mess with success. So they had been successful with, with The Crossing. They say, hey, go do Steel Town. Go do the next album. Do it any way you want. We, we have faith in you. Well, as soon as, as, soon as that uh, commercial success isn't there, then the record company will step in again. And that's what they're doing here. So here's a quote from Dave Bates. A little bit lengthy, I apologize, but I think it's important. And this can be found in uh, the Alan Glenn book. And that is one of the good things about this book is that it's got a lot of interesting interviews from people from the record company side. So this is a, this is a recent interview with Dave Bates. This isn't from the 80s. This is something he's talking about now. And he says, in terms of record sales, things had dropped off quite considerably. The last couple of singles had not done well at all. I mean, they'd managed to get in the top 30, but that's more to do with playing marketing games in those days. Limited limited editions and all that sort of stuff. You end up with a higher place than you'd actually sold records. So in those days, if you were in the top 30 and only the top 30, with all the games that you were playing, it really meant that your fan base had shrunk and your album sales base would shrink accordingly. And Big Country had not taken off in Europe and America. It was heading towards a disaster. I can't remember what the sales figures were, but things were bad, and Chris Briggs had left. So I was brought on board to try and turn things around. I mean, I had known Stuart for some time and always got on with the other guys and got on with Alan Edwards and Ian Grant. They all asked if I could get involved, so yes, I got involved. And then he has another line here, which I think is these these next few sentences, which is are the last I'll read, are really indicative, and you got to keep this in mind. And this is what he was thinking, I'm sure, when he did make this change uh, in the mix. He says, my first thought was, how do we get them back into the charts again? We needed to listen to the material and try and steer and find and identify a hit single. And the other thing was to try and find someone to work with them for the production purposes. There was a real rethink at this time. They just couldn't come up with the same thing again. 
The sound that they had done on the last album obviously hadn't gone well with the public, and we were looking to not turn them into a metal band or not turn them into a folk band, but try and move them and their sound along. So, again, it, you know, this period we've got the record company starting to step in a little bit, maybe even a lot. And I guess, you know, whatever was going through Dave Bates' head, he must have made that decision to move to Walter Turbot, I imagine, because he thought um, Robin Miller's mixes at the time weren't – my feeling is that he probably thought they weren't um, as in sync with that particular year, which what was popular during that specific year in the 80s. Uh -huh. and, and when I look back, I can see that. You know, If you remember a lot of the 80s songs on the radio at the time, they were, they were full of reverb. And in fact, Robin Miller even calls it 80s reverb. I mean that was the sound. So – it's just a crying shame because while for me it doesn't ruin the album, it certainly detracts from what could have been. I mean, you know, Robin Miller's mixes, the one the one that I've heard, and we've also got his mix, I believe, on Song of the South, they're timeless, timeless mixes. There's nothing dated about those mixes. I mean, it's just like he said, it's an organic sound of the music, the performance, the musicianship. There's if if you listen to his version of Look Away, you would not think necessarily that that is an 80s song. There's nothing about it that screams 80s. It's just guitar, bass, drums, um, you know, and overdubs, and it just sounds as fresh as if it was recorded today, in my opinion. Um, and then you get the Walter Turbot treatment, which definitely added more of that reverb and some of those 80s synthy little undertones. And, you know, it, again, it doesn't ruin the album for me. I'm not trying to suggest that it does because I love this album, but... When I look back on these mixes and Robin Miller's approach and what could have been, it kind of kind of makes my heart hurt a little bit because I would love to hear that approach given to all of these songs. We definitely agree on uh, which mix we prefer, uh, and uh, whether it's dated or not, I think uh, that's that's a bit here and there for me. Uh, but uh, yeah, the album that could have been is really uh, one of the regrets about this album. And uh, I, I heard one comment that the reason they didn't keep those mixes was it sounded too much like Sade. Isn't yeah. that correct? Yeah, you're right. That's right. Um, that is another thing Dave Bates said. He said uh, he said the album, or the original mixes sounded too much like Sade. Yeah, and that doesn't make sense at all. If yeah. you listen to the mix of Look Away, what, which part? Exactly. I mean, come on. Exactly. It's, it's ridiculous. But uh, I guess... Um, in hindsight, you, you can say anything to, to back up the choices you made. You know, uh, another hope I have is that the original Robin Miller mixes are still existing somewhere in a vault, that they weren't totally thrown out. But uh, unfortunately, Bruce doesn't have them. I think Robin alluded to that he didn't have them. So if they exist, they would be in the record company vault somewhere. But uh, there's no doubt that the seer backs away from the darkness of the second album and starts to open up the band's sound. And... Um, uh, they probably would have done that regardless of the producer. Uh, and we'll get into this as we talk about the album. In hindsight, it's possible to hear hints of the radical stylistic shifts coming on the next albums. Uh, a lot of the lyrics on this album are inspired by Scottish poet Hugh McDiarmid, who is also known for forming the Scottish Nationalist Party. And we'll get back to his contributions during some of the individual song discussion. But for now... Uh, we can notice something that Stuart said, which really sets uh, some of his goals and aspirations for the album. Uh, reading his poems gave me the idea for the seer. He had this idea for a Scotland that, that was modern and vital and outward looking, and not one that was just a sentimental picture of clans, whiskey and bagpipes. And uh, I think he said it even better in the liner notes to the seer. And uh, I think uh, 
we read them for No Place Like Home, so why not just make it a tradition? So and Stewart's liner notes for all these albums, for all the remasters, are really lovely, really beautiful, and just like his lyrics, very poetic and very meaningful. So for the seer, we have. I came to one day in 1985 and found I had been around the world several times in a chaos of bagpipe guitars and cold small beer. I had been translated and subtitled from the sack to the mill and came home to a place that did look like the press kit. I was aware that I was carrying more than just some cheap luggage around with me, especially when I spoke in an accent deemed everything from cute to impenetrable, depending on who was doing the listening. It seemed that all I did was defined by my being Scots, and all of it, someone else's definition. So I opened my eyes, I looked, I listened, I read, and made tangible for myself what had been instinctive. Somewhere between Alex Harvey and Hugh McDiarmid, Glenos and Hapton Park was a culture, and it was mine. It, too, had been packaged and marketed, but it was there, tucked away in a corner, below the whiskey and shortbread crates. <laughs> So I took it out and dusted it off, and there it was. It wanted to be outward-looking and forward-thinking, freed of the misty sentimentality of nationalism, but aware of its continuity. Where have we been? Where are we going? What can we give? What can we learn? Me? I just brought it to the party. So I, just like uh, you read it just like you read a, a good song lyric. It's, it's, it's really wonderful how he puts it. So... Uh, Definitely the Scottish identity is very strong on this album, and I think we can safely say this is the most Celtic-sounding album of all the big country albums. It's really chock-full with, uh, with that history, and also several of the lyrics go into uh, definite Scottish uh, things. Let's leave it at that for now. And uh, just like the, the subject matter, uh, it's, it's very accessible, much more accessible album than Steel Town. And stronger attachment to Scottish folk music. Yeah. And uh, I see it definitely as very much Stewart's album. Uh, he once again wrote the lion's share of music and lyrics. And uh, although Stewart is always fairly quick to point out this is a band album and it's a, it's a band effort, I think we can say that uh, this is a very strong individual statement coming from his point of view. Yeah. I mean, you know, he he does say that the album is like a vision of the future. And he says it revolves around the two tracks, The Seer, which is based on a story I saw on TV once about the Scottish Nostradamus, and Eilidon, which is a look toward the future, a, fi a fictitious thing I invented, a hope. So, so it's interesting. So, you know, that's that's where we're starting. I think it was a I think it was a needed change for Big Country, um, as far as trying something a little bit different. And that's the one thing I I love about this album is that it's it's definitely different. From what we've heard before from Big Country, lazy critics will still say uh, every song sounds the same listening to this, but it doesn't take that much listening to realize, sure, the sound, the, the style is still there of Big Country. You know it's Big Country, but there's it's, it's very different. There are a lot of songs on this album that are different than anything the band had done before. They're moving in a different direction while still remaining true to their roots and, and what they had done before, but they're kind of expanding a little bit. And um, I love I love the album. I think it's a great uh, bookend or or a great companion to Steel Town. It's so different, obviously, but it's 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 nice. It's like kind of having a great meal and then cleansing the palate with something completely different that's still really good. So that's how I look at it. And um, you know, with that, let's get into the album. Thanks very much. This song is uh, is one you may be more familiar with. 
It's a sort of Cops and Robbers song. It's called Look Away. We've got Look Away, and we've we've already played the uh, the Robin Miller original mix, and you guys have of course heard the the Walter Turbot mix, uh, which is the one that made the album. And I really do think it's ironic, first of all, that of all the problems that Dave Bates had with the sound and going so far as to bring a new guy in to remix it, it was actually Robin Miller's mix of Look Away that became the most successful big country uh, charting single of all time. So, you know, that that tells you something right there about uh, Dave Bates's uh, how how strong his feelings were there and, and whether they were correct or not. So. Look Away was released uh, as the first single to the album, and I think obviously, uh, I think most people would agree that whether you really like the song or not, it really was the perfect single for the band. I think it's a great song. Um, it, it was inspired by a movie that Stewart saw, and if you want to see this movie, it's called, um, I think it's called Harry Tracy Desperado, and it stars Bruce Dern. I have not seen it, but I'm probably going to have to check it out now. But it's about a guy named Harry Tracy, who was one of the last outlaws of the Old West, and kind of at the time in America when the Old West was was dying out and giving way to industrialism, and and you know things were changing, and and those outlaws were becoming a thing of the past. This guy was apparently one of the last of them. Now, um, I, I did some research on this guy. He was apparently a pretty pretty terrible person, <laughs> which is, you know, probably a little different than the guy in Look Away, who there's there's kind of a sympathetic side to the character portrayed in Look Away, but this guy was actually captured after a gunfight in Colorado, and he escaped, and he went on a killing spree, and he eventually committed suicide to avoid being captured after he was shot in the leg. And uh, something that was written about him back in 1902, it says, in all the criminal lore of the country, there is no record equal to that of Harry Tracy for cold-blooded nerve desperation and thirst for crime jesse james compared with tracy is a sunday school teacher so there you go you got the like probably the most famous outlaw jesse james called a sunday school teacher next to this guy so you know we're not saying that look away was about harry tracy but i thought it was interesting that it was inspired by him and um stewart and talking about uh, the the guy based on the movie he said he had a great sense of his own destiny he knew he was a man out of his time so it's interesting that a that an album that is so much about finding one's place in the present and finding in Stewart's words before kind of putting Scotland in a, in the sense of where it belongs present day versus these nationalistic feelings about it it starts out with a song about a man who was out of his time and and couldn't survive in the time that he was in um it, it's a really interesting song and i think it's probably one of the first like really storytelling type of songs from Big Country and from Stewart. Um, I think this song is, I think it was the perfect way to relaunch Big Country onto the public. I mean, I think this is a, an incredible song from a technical standpoint. And I think it's also a, a really great example of how the band can change and grow because there, were, there really was nothing that sounded like Look Away in the band's past catalog. I mean, this, this does not sound like something from The Crossing or Steel Town, but it still it sounds very much like big country to me. And, you know, I think this is a perfect, perfect example of how the band could still change and develop and evolve while staying true to their roots. The things that stand out to me about the song are, of course, we've got the classic drum opening, which is one of Mark Brzecki's most signature parts. 
nobody could ever get that right after he left. I mean, the, the guys who tried to play it in the band, whether it was Pat Ahern or Chris Bell, they never could quite get that part right. There's nothing that's dumbed down in this song, which which is why I really respect it as a single. It's got big country flashing their musicianship in all its glory. Tony's bass is just incredible in this song. It's flying all over the place. It's not your it's not the typical type of bass playing that you would hear from a band that's trying to release a nice safe little single. I mean most most singles that were put out um, back then and, and even now, you know, the bass player would just kind of play the root notes and you wouldn't want him to be doing all these walking, running bass parts, but not so here. I mean, Tony's bass is going all over the place. Um, and we've got a lot of, it's not completely new for big country, but especially coming off of Steel Town, we've got a, I think a declaration of, of the type of sound that this album wanted to have. I mean, whereas Steel Town was nothing but a wall of hard guitars pretty much throughout We've got a really cool use of clean guitars throughout this song, and uh, I think that was kind of new for Big Country. And, and there really are no distorted guitars until that great chorus kicks in. Um, and I think the parts in this song are are fantastic. The, the various guitar parts. I mean, you've got the thing that Bruce plays in the verse, which is very catchy. I love that little part. Um, and then the little, I'm gonna have to play these instead of singing them. But it's full of great guitar parts. It's full of, um, you know, a classic big country sound. Now, I will say that the song to me, I, I really had to to force myself to really listen to this song again in preparing for the podcast and try to try to cleanse my mind of the of the hundreds of times that I've heard it because, kind of like the song in a big country, it's it's one of those songs that. It's almost lost a lot of its appeal to me and its emotional appeal to me because I've just heard it so many times. I mean, I don't think there's been a show that the band hasn't played it since the since this song came out. And, um, you know, it's it's constantly played. And again, it was their biggest charting single ever, even bigger than in a big country. Um, so that's so it's no surprise that they keep playing it. But um, just that constant, you know, barrage that only a super fan like us could have from hearing this song over and over again is kind of made it it's it's going to make it very low on my list here when we when we say what our favorite songs of the album are but that should not take away from in from what is in my estimation almost a perfect pop song from big country is every song going to be like this you're going to wax poetically about every little thing <laughs> and i'm going to bring us down to earth <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can only do what i what i do and you yeah, can only you do can. what you do <laughs> yeah, so so let me do what I do. This song is pish. Uh, <laughs> now uh, you you've, you're insane. You, you you've summarized it nicely, really. It's um, it's a pop song. Uh, it's uh, it's a perfect song to come back and get a hit. And uh, Stuart has always been one to describe it in very easy term, label it as the cop and rubber song, and uh, uh, that's exactly what it is. It's kind of an adventurous rump, so to speak, from ages past, from the days of Highwaymen and 
sheriffs and train robbers and, and those kind of things. With a catchy melody to go along with it. But um, that really makes this song the first of its kind in the big country catalogue. Uh, a song which is pop-based. It's not really about anything deeply meaningful. Just telling a story. A lightweight story for entertainment. And obviously their biggest hit ever. So how can we knock it? But uh, looking at this as the first song on the album that followed Steel Town, which I consider to be one of the best albums in the history of mankind, this is <laughs> such a departure. They came back with their poppiest song yet. Uh, so off the bat, that didn't endear the song to me. And uh, a deranged lunatic once put it very nicely. I really don't hate the song. I just strongly disliked it for what it represented. And that's really what I, uh, <laughs> how I feel about this song. And uh, the problem is also that the band created such a high bar for themselves with The Crossing and Steel Town. So songs like Look Away, uh, when it came out and was measured against previous efforts, it, it really failed to live up to those standards. Uh, but that in itself is not a huge problem because how many things can really measure against The Crossing and Steel Town? The problem that I have with this song is that Look Away very quickly became a staple of their live shows. It became the song they always had to play. And you may think that the song they always had to play was in a big country. Uh, I am here today to tell you that after 1986, it's actually Look Away. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll be careful in how I word this, but let's say I've been fortunate enough to hear a sizable number of recordings from big country shows over the years. I think every tour, numerous shows. And... There are probably many songs that are present in most of the shows that they've ever done, but Look Away is definitely one of the mainstays. And I have to admit, uh, I struggle to get past the band's persistence when it comes to playing the song, coupled with the lightweightness of what the song represents. And like you said, there, there's so many nice musical elements to it, but the lightweightness of the lyrics, I, I, I really don't care for a cop and rubber song. I don't care for a sort of nice adventurous thing after songs about pain and truth and things that really matter that this, uh, I said, what uh, is, is this, is this what we have now? So, uh, <laughs> so that, that really was, and is a big bias of this song to me. And, uh, but to get back to the overplayed, this, this, this is the most overplayed song in the entire big country catalog. So, Again, this is as close as I come to possibly hating a big country song without actually hating it. There's one I actually hate, but you all know about that. Uh, You're stealing so, my lines again. I steal from the best. I'll give you some credit. <laughs> but it got to the point when hearing this song had the same effect as waving a red cloth in front of me. It became an internal, oh, not not again. And, <laughs> and, and just to give a very concrete example, in... 1995, the band did a wonderful round of record store, in-store jams, right? They would play five songs usually from the new album at the time, Wide Long Face, and they would close out with a classic. Which song do you think that was? So, it, Once again, Look Away Rears Its Ugly Head. And uh, <laughs> when they released Without the Aid of a Safety Net, I really loved the acoustic first half of the album. It was, for the first part, unexpected, and it was just so good and brought out something new of each and every song they played. And it was almost a disappointment to see them switch to electric halfway through it, and it became a double punch in the face when the first electric song was Look Away. So <laughs> uh, you see the pattern. It, it's just become one of those things that I started noticing and started it started grinding on me. And it's right. probably just as much my fault for becoming so obsessed about it, but good Lord, it really became grinding. And to this day, Look Away is still one of those songs that it just won't ever go away. But uh, over time, I mellowed about the song. 
I, I still so have a hiccup every time it comes on, but significantly less so than 15 to 20 years ago. So um, You've only made me like the song even more now, knowing what it does to you. Well, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I have to say something. Over time, uh, I have especially come to notice the fabulous playing on the especially the rhythm section the yeah, guitars it's are it's incredible it's the rhythm section that i like i think that's the strong bits of this song and i especially love tony's bassline on this song oh, and um it's i real yeah it really is and you can hear it really well in a recording from a bass clinic that tony did in london last year and he was accompanied by mark on drums and this is a sample one song that we that became a hit for us particularly in america was a song called look away and I don't know how the bass line for this particular song came about, but it's puzzled me, and I know that a lot of bass players who try to sort of play it are puzzled by it, and uh, I can't explain what it is or why it is that the bass line has turned out in this particular way, so um, I'm going to leave it up to you to see what you think. Uh, in this stripped-down version, you can actually really hear what I'm doing. There are things to like about the song, but um, uh, sad to say, I like it a hundred times more when just Tony and Mark play it with no singing, no guitars, because then it be almost becomes fresh. But look away, the song, I'm afraid, is ruined for me. And um, apart from the overplayedness, I I uh, expect more than yeah, cop and rubber song. I, I don't know. I may have paid too much attention to that tag. So maybe it's not <laughs> a fair tag, but... Um, uh, no, it's, it's clearly. Fair. I mean, cl clearly, lyrically, he uh, has delivered stronger ones than "Look Away." Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the last thing I'll say about it, just to counter some of the things that you said. Um, oh, uh, the rebuttal. Yeah, this, we got to have a little rebuttal, or it's just, it just gets too boring. You brought up the, the rhythm section, and that's what makes it such a great single for me. Even even though it was a huge departure from Steel Town, I, I think it was an expected departure. Um, but just the fact that they didn't water anything down musically. I think, as far as their abilities and their playing, I think really makes the song, it's definitely, a, to me, it's a non-sellout type of single, whereas something like King of Emotion, you could think, oh man, you know, what are they doing here? But with Look Away, I never got that feeling. I just thought, this is much more accessible, but I still really like it. It still feels like big country, and I totally get what you're saying about the the lyrics, you know, it's it's a storytelling song versus the themes of life that were pre prevalent in, in steel town, but you know, there were, there were kind of elements of storytelling in the crossing as well. And I, I don't mind a good storytelling song as long as it's done well and, and inspires some sort of emotion in you. And that song did that for me, but like you, I will totally agree with you that it's been overplayed for me. And 
that's no fault of the band. I think it's probably just one of those, aside from the fact that it was their, you know, best-selling single, it, it reached number seven in the UK, by the way, and number one in the Irish charts. But um, aside from that, I, I bet you that it's just like a really comfortable song for them to play. I mean, w- having played in, in bands before, sometimes you, you get a repertoire where you just like, if, like if you're doing a sound check, you, th- you, you always play the same song because it's the most comfortable song. I just always got that feeling that for them, it was just a very comfortable song to just play, look away. and Yeah, they can they play just it in their sleep. Ex- exactly. And it was just like something they That's could sit back and play. That's not a good thing, by play. the way. <laughs> well, it depends. I mean, you know, if they're playing it poorly, that's one thing. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it overplayed, yes, it's definitely their version of Rock and Roll All Night or something like that by Kiss. But uh, I can't hold them. I, I can't blame them too much for that. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway. Okay, so to rebut the rebuttal a little bit uh, about no, 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 no rebuttals of rebuttals. Sorry. <laughs> well, to, uh, <laughs> to to your point about whether they sold out or not. I, Yes and no. You know, I think uh, if you look back at previous singles, they had in a big country, pretty big hit. Fields of Fire, pretty big hit, and that feels like very core big country. And they were able to do it on their terms. Look away, it's very clear they're going for the hit. And when that feeling is there, that it's pretty clear they're going for a hit, then they're making it more accessible. Uh, even though all the trademarks are there, all the signatures, and you can clearly hear that, which band it is. Right. Uh, there is still an element that they went for it and they left something behind. And uh, how strongly that is felt is clearly individual, as you can tell from us too. I feel it's stronger than you. But uh, That's a good point, though. It's a yeah. good point. Of course it's a good point. <laughs> well, and it gets back to the thing that I said before. You know, Dave Bates, his very first comment, how can we get them back into the charts? Mm. Um, I, I know there was – I think Bruce had said there was a demo that Stewart did of Look Away. I've never heard it. I don't know if anyone has, but um, was he writing to specifically to 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 get a hit? Very, very, very possible that he was. I guess for me, I don't really have a problem with that as long as the subject matter is is still what I would consider big country. The sound is big country, and that it's something that you know that is true to him, and that he doesn't feel like he's watering himself down or or his artistic vision down. He's just trying something different. That's kind of the feel I get from Look Away. So how would you rank it on the seer? I have it as number eight out of ten. I have it as number ten out of ten. Oh wow! I never want to hear it again. That is surprising. It's you, not surprising. You've heard you, me for twenty years. No, I, w- I was expecting something else, something else to be <laughs> ten for you, but that surprises me. You, you no, crazy, you crazy uh, bastard. Yeah, you deranged <laughs> lunatic. Shit! We'd like to do something now, which is all about. Being proud of who you are and what you're about. I think everyone should be that. Songs about things which have been, things which are happening now, and things which are still to happen. So it's actually a very comprehensive song indeed. Let's go. Bruce gave me money to say that. Not much. The song's called The Seer. Long ago I had a tale I never will forget. The time was in the telling on the bed, the scene was set. The sky was rolling blindly on the tale and the gun. She was prepared among the stones and saw what was to go. Oh! 
All right, well, let's move on. We're gonna now we're gonna hit the steer, the big track of the album with the great guest Kate Bush, and Swine is gonna take it away. Yes, um, we immediately get into more comfortable territory. Oh man, what a difference from the first song. Uh, the seer is based on the tale of a Scottish woman, I believe. Even though when I researched uh, this person, she was a man. There were references to it being a man, so I've seen yeah. both. I did the same thing. It, it was a man. His name was, was Kenneth McKenzie. Okay, so uh, I thought part of the thing was they got Kate Bush to sing the part because it was a woman. I always thought that too, I, but I, I get the feeling that Stuart changed just changed the, uh, the the sex of the character. I think he, yeah. So in this song, it's a woman. Yeah, exactly. All right. So anyway, the name of the seer in real life is Brian Seer. And she slash he is a legend figure in Scottish folklore. And to some degree, you can call uh, him a Scottish Nostradamus. Uh, he had the ability to see things and predict things. And uh, uh, base... Oh, wait. My notes disappeared. <laughs> Sorry. Why are you laughing? I, it's, not, it's, it's nothing you didn't know. You know it uh, disappeared because of the, the work of the seer, the bronze seer. <laughs> The seer could only predict things, not mess things up. I can do that well on my own. This song is everything Look Away isn't. <laughs> Sorry, I have to start over. <laughs> <laughs> the bronze okay. seer is really attacking you right now, the demon. If uh, that is uh, in the form of Kate Bush, I don't mind. <laughs> Kate Bush now or Kate Bush in 1986? I don't care. This is, of course, a very strong and firm return to Celtic music, much more so than the previous song. Um, it might be one of the more Celtic songs. Would you let, it, would you let your hate of Look Away go? Uh, I will mention it in each and every song so far. And, and to come. Right. Uh, yeah, the arrangements are so clever and extremely intricate. And the musicianship in this song is, at times, just out of this world. And the song goes through so many movements, so many passages. And there are time signature changes. And not the least, the song has some very dramatic and extremely cinematic lyrics that very strongly feels like they are about something. There's a high sense of drama, a high sense of foreboding in the song, uh, right up there on the level with the best big country songs on the crossing of Steeltown. So to me, this is a true big country epic. It feels large in life, high adventure, and uh, very dramatic. And that's not even all. Last but not least, we obviously have a powerhouse guest vocal from one of the biggest female pop stars of the time. In the trees, it's coming. When I was a child, running in the night, afraid of what I might be, hiding in the dark, hiding in the street, and the world was full of enemies. I want to discuss Kate Bush's contribution for a bit. There are two things to mention. First, I've seen some comments over the years about Kate coming in and singing fantastically and just making this song shine. And uh, I, I really agree. She delivers. She definitely has her part in how good the song is. But uh, I don't feel it's like she comes in and makes the song fantastic. The song was already fantastic. And there's always been an implication from some quarters, be it the press or, or whatever, that the band should be thankful she was willing to come in and do it. And uh, that's not untrue. But at the same time, Kate should really be proud to have been part of such a great, great track. 
And uh, to me, this is one of Big Country's finest moments ever, really. This song, I, I could wax poetically about it for hours. And I really don't know why they don't play it more. But the band never paraded the song much. They chose to highlight stuff like Look Away and One Great Thing. And that leads me to my second, much bigger point. Uh, whether I am the only one who thinks that they didn't manage to capitalize on Kate's in moment. Uh, one of my biggest regrets ever about Big Country, I could make a top 10 list and say which are the most lost opportunities. And this is one of them. Uh, I always regretted that this song wasn't a single. And not primarily because it's such a great song, because no matter how great I think it is, you could debate whether it's the right single choice for the band. But the pure star power of Kate in 1986 was definitely not to be sneezed at. She just released Hounds of Love, one of the definite albums of the 80s. Yeah. She had several world charting singles, several video successes. And, I mean, she knocked Madonna off the top of the charts when she released the singles from that album. So let's be very clear about this. Getting Kate Bush was a gigantic scoop for the band. And I'll say it again, a gigantic scoop. And it really wasn't fully capitalized on. So it's such a shame that this track wasn't a single. And I asked Bruce about that in episode 11, and he told us this. Too long. The record company thought it was too long. Ah. And it is, it is too long. And we, there was talk about us trying to find some edit points to bring it down in time to be a single. But it's just the way the song built, and especially having Kate's vocals, it, would have, it wouldn't have made sense to edit it. You would have cut through the vocals. And I was talking about it being a single, especially being the title track. But it was just too long and it was impossible to edit. You could probably do it nowadays with the old computer technology, but back then, you know. The track itself is five and a half minutes long, 525 to be very exact. And uh, maybe the technology of the day made it hard to chop down, but it's definitely possible. And, and the funny thing is about its length is that they already chopped something out of it. I, I don't know if they recorded it or not. But there's that line, and I mentioned this when we were talking to Bruce, and he, he had forgotten about it too, but there's a whole new line, or there's there's a whole different line in that song that says... Uh, I bet that line was in the Robin Miller version, and then was cut out in the subsequent remixing. It would be interesting to find that out. It really would be, because it was printed, that, that lyric was printed in the lyric sheet, and I always used to wonder about it, just like I used to wonder about those odd lyrics from The Crossing that, that never actually made it onto the album. Mm. And, then it, and then it wasn't until I saw them finally play that song, and I think it was like in – I think the first time I heard them do that was in 1990, even though I know they played it a couple of times on the Peace in Our Time tour. But um, the first time I heard it was a version with Pat O'Hearn playing drums, and uh, they, they added that line in, and I was just like, oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned – the the rhythm section again here is just incredible i mean mark's drumming unbelievable here uh tony's bass playing unbelievable and and the lyrics are really fantastic too i yeah, mean yeah extremely so it, it really uh, evokes the same imagery as on the first couple albums this this yeah. is this is right up there it really it really is i mean like some of my favorite lines are there will be blood among the corn and heroes in the hills i mean what what awesome lines yeah uh, the little guitar run that, that runs through the solo part is just like a couple of notes played over and over again, but it works so beautifully and is so perfect. And, mm. and Kate Bush's performance, you know, as we've already talked about, is, is awesome. And one thing I want to say about that, too, real quickly, about Kate Bush and, and specifically, 
as someone who really loves her work, she is like the queen of the background vocals. And I don't know if you would agree with this, but it's like so many people, when they sing background vocals, they just will harmonize over what the the main line is, and they'll do a harmony, maybe two har- two part harmony or whatever. Kate Bush constructs the most intricate background vocals that I've ever heard anyone construct, and they're they're almost like their own songs sometimes. And I think that's what she did here. I mean, because when we talked to Bruce and and even reading some of this stuff about uh, what Robin Miller said about her, she came in, she worked for, she sang her part for like 12 hours. She was in the studio working on this part and she had apparently worked all this stuff out before she came in. And I remember reading a quote from Robin Miller and he he basically said, you know, I did, I wasn't going to tell Kate Bush what to do. We gave her the song. She came in. We just said, you know, what do you want to do? And she had, he said, she had all these parts worked out already, and so she, once again, just like she does on her own stuff, she layered all of these pieces. And man, it's, it's so amazing. And when she gets to that end part where she's doing the yeah, 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 uh, that's just like, uh, yeah, one of the one of the most goosebump inducing moments on the album. And just one one quote from Robin Miller about that that I thought was pretty funny from Alan Glenn's book. He said, um when she finally walked into the power plant, which was the name of the studio where they were recording. Uh, Miller says, she decided I was a very strange man. Maybe it's because I knew what I wanted her to do, but she had prepared her own stuff. She sits very straight, has great breasts, and is very alluring. (laughs) (laughs) Say no more. (laughs) One other thing Miller says about Kate Bush's performance on this, and again, we have kind of a what-could-have-been moment. He says, the stupid record company had the album remixed and ruined it, and you can hardly hear her. So from that comment, it sounds almost like you know, his mix would have featured her even more in the, in the levels and, and, and in the mix. So that's, that's pretty interesting to think, because I always thought she was featured very well in the song. But if he thinks that she was pushed to the back, I can only imagine what it, what it would have sounded like. Yeah, she probably took over the entire song. <laughs> yeah, maybe she did. With the band st- standing there grinning and egging her on. I asked our special Great Divide song editor, Lee Waterton, to try to create a single edit of the song. And he came up with several sketches, all of them less than four minutes long, so that fits the bill as a single. And we will play one of them for you right now. So the version you're about to hear is exactly three minutes, 38 seconds long. So this is not just cutting away small bits and fading out early. This song has really been restructured and it's been given a decent shot of editing together a single version. And so we give you a slice of what could have been a single edit of the title track from The Seer.
I don't know how you feel, Tom, but I have to say, strangely enough, this really works for me. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, thanks to Lee for doing that. It's it's really cool to hear, you know, what uh, an idea of how that could have been as a single. I mean, for me, I, I totally agree with you about the Kate Bush connection. Now, in America, she was big, but she wasn't nearly as big here as she was in the UK. So, you know, I I wasn't as cognizant of her huge star power at the time, and I kind of came to her a little bit later than when she was actually big. But I have to say, Hounds of Love is one of my favorite albums of all time, probably in my top five albums of all time, maybe even, you know, high in the top five. And she was fantastic back then. She was definitely in the UK a phenomenon. So, yeah, the fact that she was on that song is amazing. Now, I got to say, I, I never heard The Seer as a single. I never even really thought about it as being a single, really, until you brought it up talking with Bruce. And it makes total sense. I mean, the way that, the way that you frame it as far as taking advantage of her star power, I, I have to agree. I mean, it, it would have definitely given them even more momentum. And if you think about that coming off of whether that would have been the first single or, you know, Look Away did so well that it's hard to argue with that single. But maybe maybe the seer coming after that would have been like a with Kate Bush would have been a great one two punch. I mean, the, the reason I never thought of it as a single, to be honest, is just the music. I, it just to me, that song says album track uh, all the way through. I like I don't hear that song being played on the radio or being like palatable to someone driving down the street because it's such an advanced, uh, almost progressive at times song. And in fact, it's a song that really didn't even register with me very deeply when I first heard it. I mean, I thought it was good, but I, I absolutely love it now. But when I first heard it, it, it was hard for me to process, you know, everything that was happening. I don't think my own musical appreciation ability had, had developed quite as well, you know, as it should have at the time. I was so into you know, metal and all that stuff. And I was really just coming out of that. But there were so many interesting things about this song and, and so many the, structurally, it was so different than anything I'd really ever heard before. And it took me a while to process it. Yeah, it, def it definitely is a very progressive song it, with all its movements. And uh, what really gets me about the whole thing, the whole Kate Bush uh, misused opportunity is uh, they were willing to change the band into, you know, or at least for some songs, willing to change the band into the most fine-tuned pop machinery orchestra and uh, they, they really did it in the name of chart success and that was the overriding thing they wanted hits on this album so for them not to have recognized kate bush's car star power and taken advantage of that is really strange i don't yeah. get it and uh, even if bruce and the band said this song is too long we can't chop it it deserves to stand uh, and its full length uh, the record company could have if they wanted to said we need to capitalize on kate we will actually do an edit we'll actually push it out right uh, whatever they, they could have done it if they wanted to and uh, it speaks volumes that years later uh, they uh, there were singles that were left off the greatest hits compilation through a big country but the seer was actually put on there let me just read a little bit about what bruce says about this song and this is from this is from a website hosted by glenda matthews it's stewardadamson.co.uk and uh, she has a lot of great stuff on here, so I hope you don't mind, Glenda. I'm going to steal uh, one of your articles that you've posted here throughout this podcast. And this is from 1986, and it's Bruce Watson talking about um, talking about each – actually, he doesn't talk about each track, but he talks about most tracks on The Seer. So here he says, we'd done the song, and one of our mates, a guy called Davey Duncan, who used to play and sing in a band called The Shaking Pyramids, put down Barad, which is a sort of ethnic Scottish-Irish type handheld drums. And it gave it a sort of folky feel, along with the mandolins and sitars. 
we thought this song needs girls vo- girl vocals on it, and Stewart immediately thought, why don't we get Kate Bush? We said there's only one way to do it, and that's phone her management. They said that Kate would do it, but she'd like to hear a cassette of the song first. So we sent a cassette there, and she liked the song, and she worked out her parts for the song, orchestrating them really well. Then she came to the studio and did them. It took her about 12 hours to do, and it was just great. It was fantastic. I think the woman is just a complete genius. She was very shy. I think we were quite sort of awestruck as well when she walked in. Tony was like, oh, hello, Kate. Would you like a cup of coffee? Would you like a glass of orange juice? Running about saying things like that. I think we were quite shy. She was quite shy as well, but she was good fun. She's got a very comic strip type sense of humor, which we immediately identified with. And after that, it was a great time. So a little bit of extraneous info for what we're talking about specifically here. But I think what comes through there is that the, the Kate Bush thing, at least the way Bruce frames it here, it was almost like they recorded the song first and almost finished it. And then they said, hey, you know, this needs a girl vocal part on it. Let's get Kate Bush. So it's almost like it came together as an afterthought. Like a, it was it doesn't seem like it was an idea that they had from the get go. So maybe it was just the situation wasn't such that they could arrange something bigger. I mean, I don't You're know. You're thinking in terms of making a video or those kind of things? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think um, – Yeah, because we, they had the song in the can, so they could have done what they already wanted single-wise. Yeah. Uh, even put Big Country and Kate Bush, the seer, yeah. which uh, is one thing I thought about. If you want to make the maximum splash, do that. But uh, in terms of video, definitely the 80s were the era of the video. So if they could have done that and pushed out something with Kate Bush in it, that that would have been such a scoop, and video was huge everywhere. It would have been, and uh, and definitely in terms of making Big Country cool, and giving them some associations that they didn't have before, Big Country and Kate Bush. Uh, and can you, what, can you imagine, what could have been? What could have been? Oh my gosh! Ma- can you imagine how cool that could have been? The video, because just just knowing you know Kate Bush's videos and how interesting they were, and how she takes that. I mean, she's the yeah. perfect, she's the perfect person to take the role of a seer anyway. So yeah, definitely. They, but she's very cinematic. Every yeah. video has a story. I mean, I could see her like in a video with a behind a cauldron and in these smoky hills and Stewart coming to visit. It certainly would have been a better video than pretty much anything they released from the seer. God, um, yes. But, you know, I will say that the, the idea of Kate Bush in a video um, is interesting because in the Look Away video, the girl that they've got there is a dead ringer for Kate Bush at the time. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that that they chose her uh, based on that. I mean, I don't know if they set out to find someone that looked like Kate Bush, but maybe that was just the overriding factor of Stewart. You know, he saw someone and say, Hey, let's pick her. She looks like Kate Bush. But that girl in the look away video looks just like Kate Bush did around that time period. And so much so that when I first saw that video, I had to really research to make sure it wasn't Kate Bush. Cause I just, well, I, and, and look a little more closely, but mm. I thought, you know, is that Kate Bush? You know, it looks so much like her. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. Maybe in hindsight, they thought, Hey, we can't get Kate Bush. Let's do the next best thing and get a lookalike. I don't know, but, well, if they'd never thought of uh, the song as a single, they never would ask Kate Bush. So it's one of those things we never know. Maybe if they had asked, she would have been happy or ecstatic to do it. Right. But um, it's one of those, you never know. It's uh, what could have been. God, I'm going to be pissed tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you mean doubly pissed? Because I know yeah, you're going to be well, stinking drunk. <laughs> too late for that, my friend. Okay, so where do you rate the seer? Yeah, after all my praise, uh, it can only be number one. I was going to say, it must be. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm much further down than you. Um, and, and let me stress that a lot of these th- – this this list is going to be different for me than No Place Like Home where there was like considerable drops in songs. Almost all of these songs 
are very, very close together. I mean, there's really, to me, not a bad song on the album, although there's there are lesser quality ones. But for me, The Seer is number six. Incredible. <laughs> okay, well, on that note, we're going to have to end things. We don't have time to get into The Teacher right now. We're going to have to wait until episode 15 to do that. And we will start episode 15 with our discussion of The Teacher. And as a little tease for, for episode 15, just wait until you hear Svein's interpretation of the song The Teacher. I mean, quite frankly, it's shocking. It will shock you, believe me. And in fact, when I first heard it, and even since I've heard it, I've been questioning uh, my choice for co-host and slash sidekick. I've been wondering what kind of person I have chosen for this job. But I'll let you guys decide for yourselves when you hear that. So there, there you go. There's a little tease for episode 15, Spine's interpretation of the teacher. It's worth waiting for, believe me. So in all seriousness, you know, we want to thank you guys for listening, as we always do. And it really means a lot. And that's being completely sincere. I mean, whenever I hear an email or whenever I read an email from from someone or see something on the Facebook page where someone says that these shows brighten their day or lift their mood or just something that helps them get through a work day, it, it really means something. It's very cool to uh, to be able to have that effect on someone with this little show that we put together. So. You know, we, we just try to make a show that we would like listening to about Big Country, and we're really glad that you guys seem to like listening to it. I mean, we've gotten, uh, at last count, we've got about 14,000 downloads of the show since the show started back in June of 2012. So that's pretty great, and the show is growing. So, uh, you know, if you know any other Big Country fans out there, please get them to listen. And the more the merrier. That would be great. And one thing also I wanted to say, uh, both Svine and myself, we want to dedicate this show to Helen Hudson. She was a great big country fan who recently left us, and she left way too soon, and she will definitely be missed. And we just want to send our condolences to her family, her friends, her loved ones, anyone who listens to this show who knew Helen. uh, We know that you're going to miss her very much, and we want to dedicate this show to her. So again, thanks for listening, and if you want to get in touch with us and give us some of that feedback that we've been talking about, you can do that in a couple of different ways. You can find us on Facebook. Just look for, search for The Great Divide Podcast. You can uh, stay in touch with us there. You can get involved in the conversation there. A lot of good, lively discussion about Big Country. And uh, you can also email us, too, at bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com, bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com. And if you write us a cool email, or have a good idea for the show, we might even mention your name on the show. And I know that's, you know, maybe that's not the biggest carrot in the world to dangle in front of someone, but hey, it's not so bad, is it? In fact, if you just ask us to say hello to you, we'll do that on the show. In fact, John Hooley, hello to you, John Hooley. You asked me to say hello to you on the show, and I am saying hello to you, John Hooley. We are proud to have you as a listener. So thanks for listening. And if I could just get a little brief personal plug in if you want to listen to some of my original music if you have any inclination to do that please visit reverbnation.com slash thomas kerchival t-h-o-m-a-s-k-e-r-c-h-e-v-a-l i've got a lot of original music up there very big country influence as you might imagine and uh, check it out i really would love to hear some opinions it's all free i just want people to listen to it if they can so please give it a listen give it a download so we do have a couple minutes left And I think we've got enough time for a live song. So let's take us out with a live track from the Seer Tour. This is a song that Big Country played uh, really only on one tour, and that was this one. And that's the song One Great Thing. 
And this version comes from a radio broadcast from the Tower Theater in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA, 1986. This is Big Country doing one great thing. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you next time with episode 15 and our continuing discussion of the seer.
That was one great thing from Big Country. Don't go away, because when we return, Big Country performed their version of some of their favorite rock songs. 